Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and I've got my mother, Caroline, with me today to co-host. Yes. <laughs> How are you today? Another beautiful day. Another, another beautiful day. Another beautiful day in the neighborhood. And yes, right. <laughs> I bet our guest today would probably be great to write a book about Mr. Rogers. We'll we'll talk about that in a minute. Who do we have yeah, today, yeah, Mom? She would. She would. <laughs> today. today our book is Bobby, a story of Robert F. Kennedy. And um it's by Deborah Wiles and she's the author of the picture books Freedom Summer and this one, Bobby, and uh, the novels Love, Ruby, Ruby Lavender, The Aurora County All Stars, Each Little Bird That Sings a National Book Award finalist. This this is a <laughs> this is a really fantastic book, and um, the illustrations are also marvelous. So I'm just it's not it's not just a children's book. It's a book for every everybody. I was just really um, really impressed. So anyway, let's get started. <laughs> Welcome back to Writers Voices, Deborah. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate that, <laughs> and for the kind words. Thank Aww. you. Well, the last time that we spoke with you um, was about Kent State, and yes. that yeah, that was uh, um, a book that you had written for middle grade readers, I think. I think it was it. It can be middle grade, but I was really thinking it's probably high school and high, above. Okay, it's okay. A definite YA or young adult okay. novel. And in, whereas. In Whereas this one, um, Bobby, a story of Robert F. Kennedy, is more of a picture book. Right. Right. And Bobby is really a picture book for all ages. I really, truly believe that picture books can be and should be for all ages because you've got the younger readers, but then you've got their adults who are reading to them. And... um, this book definitely, it's a 48-page picture book, so it's longer than most picture books. But we're covering Robert Kennedy's life, and so this book is definitely a picture book, and it's, it's that format with that beautiful art by Tatiana Fazla-Lizardet, <laughs> uh, who's uh, elevated my text. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she did a fabulous job. Yeah, she's wonderful. She's an um, Iranian-American black artist who a fine artist who has been doing some murals across the U.S. called Stop Telling Women to Smile. She's a feminist and activist, and when she got this book, she just took it and ran with it. it her palette is beautiful uh-huh. and mysterious uh-huh. and also just really powerful, I think. So we have this book about Bobby Kennedy that is like a, it's a combined effort of so many people. Um, I don't know where I should start. Should I start telling you about Bobby, or should I tell you how the book came to be? <laughs> Let, let's what, talk what about how the book came to be. Yes, yeah, yeah, let's start there. Story for you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! You know, every book has its story. Every book has its its path to publication, and this one is almost well. It is 15 years old. The book is coming out now. But it began at a conference in Washington, D.C., where I had lunch with some publishing people, and we got to talking about Bobby Kennedy and our mutual admiration for him. And 
Um, I told the story about how I was 15 when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated and I lived in the D.C. area and I stayed up all night long to see if he had made it. And it was just a crushing blow to not just me, but of course, the entire country and even the world that he hadn't. Um, And one of my table mates spoke up and he said, you know, the story I love most about RFK is the one where he spoke extemporaneously from the back of a truck in Indianapolis. The mm-hmm. night that Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, six weeks before mm-hmm. Bobby Kennedy would be killed. And there was rioting all over the country on April 4th, 1968. But the remarks that Bobby Kennedy made to that crowd seemed to make a difference in the choices they made. <clears throat> and I didn't know that story, that Indianapolis had been calm that night. So I had to go look it up, and I I decided if I ever write about Bobby Kennedy, I need that story in that book, and of course it is. And I had been talking to some friends at Scholastic um, Book Fairs who work with a lot of my books in schools, and we were talking again about our mutual admiration, and she said, do you know about the funeral train? And I said, no, I I don't remember the funeral train. And thousands upon thousands of people had lined the railroad tracks from New York City to Arlington Cemetery in Virginia to pay homage to Bobby Kennedy when his casket passed in the funeral train with his family. And they were of all different ages, stages, colors, classes, um, jobs, families, single people. And it was, I went immediately to look that up and the book grew out of that. Hmm. So I sold the book um, in 2008. Oh. (laughs) And then I lost my editor. I sold it to Scholastic, lost my editor, um, got a new editor, which took a little time. And then we had a different vision together for the book, which took me time to figure out how to uh, wrap my head around. And one thing leads to another. You know, they talk about the glacial pace of publishing. <laughs> but really, it was it was just, uh, I don't know, it was um, several years, attempts to find the right illustrator, attempts to do several drafts, a revision, uh, when we had the right illustrator, then additions to it, returning to the original idea. At any rate. Um, <laughs> so you've worked it wasn't that this book started 15 years ago and then got put into a drawer you've been actually working on it this whole time I have um now you know off I and on I obviously aside, so, I, well I put yeah. it aside when I was writing other books like right. a lot of books right. came in between yeah um and the whole 60s trilogy and Kent State came in between However, I kept going back to Bobby and trying again, and so did my good editor, and so did the art director at Scholastic. There's Ken Geist, David Saylor, Tatiana got on board, and that elevated so much. We could see it, you know, finally. Mm-hmm. And it was worth every bit of the time and effort. It just, it took time to get this right, because, you know, you're writing, like David Saylor, the art director, <laughs> said to me, gosh, Debbie, you're writing a story about three assassinations and one war in a picture book for young people. (laughs) You know what? That's true. And yeah, I laughed too, because he said, congratulations, well done. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, in order to bring that to young people, you have to figure out ways to connect with them. And yet you're not going to write a, uh, you know, a tome of thousands upon thousands of words. You're, you're, 
you're compressed into a smaller space. And the smaller, the shorter you write, the harder it is to get it all in. So yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a, it was is, a isn't there a famous quote from Mark Twain um, in a letter where he wrote, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I love that, that one. Oh, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> it's so true. It's just so true. You know, picture books are such an art. That's why I love them so much. And that's probably why I've written or published so few of them, because it's hard to get them right. And I'm just, so glad that Scholastic stuck with me and I stuck with them and we just kept coming back to the table. Mm. And I think we have something right now we can both, all of us, be really proud of. I think so too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, some of his Thank quotes you. in here, I mean, my guys are just, they're, they're, they weren't just for then, they're for now. Oh, that's exactly. a good point. And you know, it's, that's another interesting thing about how long it took because, um, Boy, are we ever in a place right now. We always have been, but you can really just see it in bas-relief now where America is compared to where Bobby Kennedy saw us in 1965, uh -huh. 6, 7, and 8, that we're dealing with the same sort of really um, yeah. a lot of tension and a lot of challenges and a lot of possibility. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, I think no, it's, yeah. it's good for us to remember that, I mean, because we look around and we see all the, I don't know, all the friction and all the hatred and all the anger and all the violence in our country today. And it's tempting to think that it's worse than it's ever been. And it's really good to have these reminders of what it was like in the 60s, what it was like in other eras of time that mm -hmm. that this is not the first time and we've we got through those and we'll get through this well I'm glad that you said that too because I grew up in the 60s and it was just the most tumultuous time and scary often and exciting as well and I think that partly because we have we're so interconnected now digitally I think that those voices, all our voices can be amplified and out into the marketplace and out into the communications around the world. It wasn't quite that same with uh, the 60s, but it was still extremely noisy and extremely chaotic and very, very full of change. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of, well, a lot of violence. And you've written about some of that, mm -hmm. some of that violence. So, um, would be for Bobby, you know, you wrote about Kent State, and I, you know, I don't know if kids today necessarily even know the stories. These about, you know, are they are they learning this in school? Well, when I started writing the '60s trilogy, it was because I had kids of my own, and I saw that every year that they were in school, they got up to World War II in their history classes, and that was about where it quit. Mm. And I'd say, but oh. oh my gosh, there's so much more to, to this history of this country. And when I decided I wanted to write this trilogy about the 60s, I proposed it to several publishers. Scholastic was the one who scooped it up just so enthusiastically and said, yes, we will run with this idea that you have that no one has done before, where we're going to use scrapbook materials with songs and photographs and 
political stuff and biographies of people of the time. And we are going to talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we are going to talk about the war in Vietnam, and we are going to talk about the civil rights movement. And we're going to give lots and lots of different ways of looking at it. Because that's the thing that I think is so important in that we are, we would let go at our peril now, is not to look at our history and our stories from many different viewpoints and to see other people's opinion, side, stories, every person's story is important. And that's one thing that Bobby Kennedy got. That's mm. one thing that he yes. actually yeah. eventually saw was that every person is worthy of dignity and respect and that every person's story is important. And you wouldn't have known that from his early years, from his childhood. That's right. That's right. Wow. Yeah, he was So not, the book was, is a lot about he, yeah. change. Right. Yeah. The way he was treated as a child by his father, I thought was, you know, it was really sad because he was shy. Was. And, you know, he was not an athlete. He was a, you know, but he came, he came into his own. There's no doubt about that. And it took and him you, time, and, you know. It took him time. Yeah. Yes, it did. And how yeah. how were you able, Deborah, to to find out those things about his childhood and the issues that he had? I think mostly that's a matter of, in my case, a matter of research and a matter of deep research and a matter of long research over time and in libraries and bookstores and accounts, um, interviews, and I. I love doing that work. Um, we were talking about Kent State just a moment ago, and I spent many hours in the um, archive at Kent State University going sifting through letters and interviews and newspaper clippings and that sort of thing. And I did something similar with Bobby, and um, you get a whole picture or, or more of a picture of a person when you are using so many different kinds of uh, ways of seeing, you know, different voices. There's a wonderful book um, called An Honorable Profession that's out of print now, but I have several copies of it. And it was put together um, after his death and their eulogies that were delivered either in person or, um, you know, publicly or on paper in magazines and newspapers and people's reminiscences. And it's so amazing. And I got lots of tiny details from that book. And there's also excellent biographies and people who are still living who knew him and his family. So you just you go down a rabbit hole, basically. I did not realize he had 11 children. Yes. <laughs> and his wife, Ethel, was pregnant when he was assassinated mm. with their last child. Oh, um it's quite a story. It's quite a story of growing up wealthy, in privilege, with a political dynasty within that dynasty, with a father, Joseph P. Kennedy, who was determined that his sons would be movers, shakers, influencers, makers of history in this country, and did everything he could to make that happen. And actually, some of his language, you know, we will, we won't have any losers in this family, only winners and pushed mm -hmm. and pushed and pushed his children to be their very best beyond even their capabilities. And then he changed and he decided that his very best 
wasn't having to grab at everything and win and push other people aside and roll over them, but that the very best he could do would be to offer himself in service to others. That's a huge change. Yeah. So did you get an opportunity to talk to any of his children? They're very um, selective about who they are. I bet. I bet. (laughs) And that's okay with me. I totally, totally respect that. Um, And because there is so much out there, um, that was really super useful. Um, It's interesting that when you have a record of something and you have it from different sources, you, you do pretty well. You know, even his children are out there in interviews as well. So you can see them on YouTube. You can see them in print. So it's a close second to being able to be with them in their living room and talk. Right, right, right. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. And our guest today is Deborah Wiles, author of Bobby, a story of Robert F. Kennedy. How did he get the nickname Bobby? I mean, it's a pretty common nickname, but often as adults, you know, they don't, people don't go by Bobby as much by adults as adults. Mm. I think he was Bob to the people who he worked with, his staff, his mm. Um He was certainly Robert F. Kennedy or RFK in the press. Um, but the people, Mm-hmm. the people began to call him Bobby. And this is a point that I make in the book, too, that his name was Robert Francis Kennedy, um, RFK, Robert Kennedy, but we called him Bobby. We made him one of ours. Mm-hmm. Would you like to read a little bit from the book? Sure, sure. I will preface it by saying that it took me a long time back to those years that we were trying to come up with a story that was just right. It took me some time to decide how I would tell this story. There's so many ways to tell it. And one of my favorite books of all time is William Faulkner's book, The Reavers. It was his last novel about growing up in Mississippi and which is one of my, I'm from there as well. My parents are from Mississippi. And so I really connected with this particular book. Um, And it begins like this. Grandfather said, that's it. That's the frame. And then he goes in and tells the whole story and comes back to the grandfather. When I hit on that, because I read that book every year. And when I saw that, I said, Oh, my gosh, of course. This is a generational story. So we have a grandfather holding the hand of a grandchild and walking alongside those railroad tracks that I've talked about what they're about. But you don't know when you open the book. You don't know where they're going or what's going on. So he begins like this, or the book begins like this. Grandfather said, back in the days when people worked with their hands, In the days before spaceships and televisions and computers, Robert Francis Kennedy was born. All his life, he loved ice cream and big dogs, just like you do. There were rich people and poor people in America then, just like today, and a lot of people in between. Robert's family was wealthy, So Robert grew up a rich boy, the seventh of nine children, small and awkward and shy. 
His father, Joe, pushed his children to be tough and fierce, to reach out their hands and grab at victory, to win at everything, everything. That's just who Joe was. We don't want any losers around here, he shouted. Robert wanted to please his father and to be fierce and strong and ferocious. So one day, when his family was on their boat not too far from shore, he jumped overboard to prove he could outswim his brothers. Soon he began to flail and splash and sink. He can't swim, yelled his brother Jack. I'll get him, yelled his brother Joe Jr. Even though he came in last in family competitions, even though he was prone to accidents because he was trying so hard, Robert tried harder than anyone else in his family to win. Once when rushing to dinner and trying to outrun his sisters, he ran straight into a glass door. The glass shattered all around him, and Robert ended up with stitches. Still, he pretended to be tough and fierce on the outside, just like you sometimes. But on the inside, where his heart beat steadily and his feelings simmered and bubbled, Robert was thoughtful and gentle and often afraid, just like you, maybe. Sometimes when Joe Kennedy was disappointed in his young son's shyness and awkwardness, he bellowed, runt. But Robert's mother, Rose, knew better. She knew that Robert's strength lay in his heart. Should I stop there? Yes, that's a good place. Good place. Thank you. Yeah, that's that, that's a that's a beautiful beautiful thing to say about his mother, and I'm sure it was true. I mean, that's you know she's the one that uh, encouraged him, and of course, mm-hmm. and his older brother <clears throat> JFK gave him a place in the you know in, in his uh, entourage. And so it's just mm-hmm. yeah, it was just great that they they pulled yeah. together. Well, he helped his brother to become president. He managed his presidential campaign in 1962. Mm -hmm. Or, I'm sorry, 1959. He was elected in 1960 and um, became attorney general. And there were things he did that were still very much part of the world that his father had pushed and pushed and pushed him to, um, to win, to win at all costs. But at some point... He began to see the folly of that. And when his brother was assassinated, when John Kennedy was assassinated, everything changed for Robert Kennedy, everything. His, his grief was so deep, he left the Johnson administration. He had stayed for some months with the transition and then left. And you didn't hear from him for months. And eventually, as we talk about in the book, he comes out of that place of mourning and decides that the voices of the American people are growing louder and louder, asking for civil rights, marching themselves and trying to change the world. He might have a job to do here, marching against the war in Vietnam. There were things that were happening in the country that he could see he might be able to be useful and help. So he ran for senator from New York and his life began again. Wow. And of course, JFK's assassination changed not just, you know, was it was a changing point for many, for the world, really. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, there have been, 
it's one of those things that that you just wonder if that hadn't happened, how the world would have been different. You know, you look at the 60s and <laughs> there's so many what ifs that are in the 60s. And I can remember as a kid growing up in the 60s, a young kid and a teenager, too, just saying, oh, my gosh, is this what the world is like with John Kennedy's assassination, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, Bobby Kennedy's assassination, the war in Vietnam? It just went on and on. And um, it was you can ask what if, but almost the better question to me is what now? Mm. What now? Mm-hmm. You know, what yeah, can we do next? now? Given given what we have right now, what can we do now? And that's what I hope this book addresses as well. You know, Carolyn and I were talking last night about JFK's assassination, remembering, you know, I was too young to remember it. I would have been not quite five years old. So mm-hmm. I don't remember. But mom said I came home from school and told her about it. My brother and I. Wow. Because <laughs> yeah. I would have been in wow. kindergarten. Yeah. That I was 10, and um, I guess I was in fourth grade. I don't even remember that. I think it was fourth grade, but I was 10. I know that. It was 63. And they closed school. They sent us all home. Mm. And I was a walker. So I remember walking home and I thought, I'm going to have to tell my mother about this. Because when you're a kid, you don't know, Mm -hmm. you know, like you're telling your mother, you don't know that the whole world is hearing this. Yeah. And I got home and the television was on during the day, which it never was. And my dad was home and it was like so different. And for three or four days, I mean, we just were glued to the television and, like I said, we lived in um, Washington, D.C., and my dad was stationed at Andrews Air Force Base, and he was the chief of safety out there for the 89th Military Airlift Wing, which is the squadron that still today flies the president and the other dignitaries. So he was busy. He was gone then. And we had the television rolled into the living room to watch, and um, we went downtown. My mother took us kids, and we stood in a line to go past JFK's casket. It was freezing cold. It was November. Mm. So these were the days, you know, we grew up in these days of, of, you know, just like today, though. I mean, you can look at today. It's a different day, but you can also look at death and destruction and violence and uprisings and the way that the world is changing right now. I mean, the 60s changed the world for good and for better or worse. And I think we're in one of those places right now, don't you? I I hope yes. so. I mean, I know I know it's changing. I don't and I hope it'll end up being for the better. I look at my grandkids who are in that age group and and what they've had to deal with in their lives already. Um particularly, you know, because of COVID, we, there wasn't anything like that in, in my childhood or, or before where it just, it just changed everything. And in Mm -hmm. many ways, I think we're going to be feeling the effects of that for, for decades. I do too. Um, Sometimes I think about the um, 1918 flu Spanish mm. flu, they called it, and the flu epidemic, um, and how that had to have done the same. It yes. had to have been the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, of course, we're so interconnected now. 
so it's just so very different. And um, I think we're, we haven't yet begun to see how that's changing us. I, yeah, I agree. I agree. I just, I, I just, you know, sometimes I wish I could just push the fast forward button. <laughs> Although, you know what they say, the only way out is through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's also a point of Bobby Kennedy. Um, you know, he, he embraced this sort of change. When he became senator in New York, um, he got himself on the subcommittee to the War on Poverty and he said, let me go see. And I remember Carrie Kennedy talking recently, actually, about her father coming home from a trip to Mississippi with this subcommittee and walking through the Delta. And there are so many amazing pictures of this trip uh, and others. But he walked into the dining room where his family was seated at the table ready for him to come home and have supper. And he just stood there and announced three families live in a room the size of this dining room, live in a house the size of this dining room. We can do better than this. And that became his catchphrase. He went to the coal mines in Kentucky. We can do better than this. He went to the basketball mm-hmm. courts in the neighborhoods in the slums of Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York and said, we can do better than this. He went to Indian reservations. We can do better than this. I mean, it was just um, people were surprised, and that's why you see so many pictures of people reaching their hands to him and him reaching his hand back. Tatiana's done a beautiful spread of that in Bobby that's just so, so meaningful. Um, people were ready to work. It wasn't like he was any kind of a savior. It was just people were ready to work and let's work together. So speaking of Tatiana, your illustrator, how did you find her or how did Scholastic find her? <laughs> She, her agent is my agent, uh-huh. and if we had published this book in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, if we had published it back then, we wouldn't have had Tatiana because she wasn't, she's younger. Uh-huh. She wasn't illustrating. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. I mean, you look at the way that things work in the world, and it's so interesting. I have to learn this over again and over again, that there are gifts to be held, And when things don't work out the way you think they will, if you wait, if you wait (laughs) and you just, you are determined and you keep going, which was another Bobby Kennedy thing, you know, let, let us keep going. Let us keep working. Let us keep it going. (laughs) So, you know, she's, she was perfect, but at the time we didn't, this is her second children's book. So she's new to this field, but boy, is she ever amazing. Don't you think? Yeah. Really amazing. Oh, oh Yeah. You know the expressions on uh, on his on his face of the illustration that she did of him. Mm-hmm. You can see you can see she can see right through to his heart. I mean, it's oh yeah, it's oh, yeah. great. It really is right through to his heart. Everybody everybody has to read this book. And she is she her background is she's a black Iranian artist, American, a native of yep. Oklahoma City. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like that's it's kind of a surprise. <laughs> that's exactly the melting pot we talk about all the time in this country, wow. and it's exactly the way that we each step up to the plate in the way that works for us. I mean, Bobby Kennedy wasn't even meant to to be um, a big cheese. I mean, there's a there's a great um, 
this great biography, American Experience Biography, that's worth watching if you are really interested in knowing more about RFK. And that's the title of the biography, RFK. And it starts out with him standing on a podium at the Democratic National Convention in the summer of 1968 and looking out. Oh, I'm sorry, not, not 1968, 64. He wasn't running, but it was like his very first time of coming out to the crowd after his brother had been assassinated in November of 63. So it's the summer of 64, and they've asked him to speak at the Democratic National Convention. And he walks out in front of the crowd, and there's a 21-minute standing ovation for him. And people are they're clapping and, and cheering for what they lost as much as anything else. But yeah, there's a voiceover. Yeah. The voiceover says he wasn't built for the spotlight. He was built for the wings. And he had to fight against a basic shyness. Many times I would stand behind the stage, and I could see his legs shaking, his hands shaking, he wasn't a natural, but all all that had to change when his brother was assassinated. And I think change is the motif of his whole life and his career. He becomes something larger than what he was. I think that's the challenge to all of us. He really got yeah. thrust into the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Now the so so Bobby was assassinated in. June of 1968. Right. And the Democratic National Convention that year was in, was that the one that was in Chicago? Oh, yeah. And, Absolutely. And the Chicago 8. The whole thing, yeah. yeah. So. Oh my gosh, that was another amazement at <laughs> that 60s time. So, you know, and I, I wonder too if, if Bobby had not been assassinated, maybe things would have you know, there wouldn't have been, and, 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 and Martin Luther King Jr., of course, too, that there might have been more of a coming together at that rather than what what actually happened. Is that a subject that you think you might write about? Hmm. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it I probably was in I one mean, of your 60s trilogies. Did you address the 68 convention? I, in I addressed it in a scrapbook. That yeah. was the beauty of the trilogy, the documentary novels, is that what you can't talk about in the actual story part of it, because it's so distracting, you'll never get through your plot. You can put it in those scrapbooks that are visual. And yeah, it's in one of those scrapbooks from Anthem. I think it was the third book in the trilogy, which takes place in 1969. And Anthem is bridging between revolution, which takes place in 64 during freedom summer, those five years it has to give you in stills and Mm. in scrapbook material. And so um, there's a lot to cover in there. And I purposely moved Anthem, which was originally in 1968, to 1969 and began a brand new book because 68 was just so fraught. And I thought, I'm going to get mired in that instead of my story of these kids who are making this cross-country trip and are going to see America along the way. Mm. So when I moved them to 69, it worked. So So at any rate... Tell me a little bit more about, so is that through this trilogy, it's the same kids? Or how they're does different, that... they're, they're companion novels, okay. so they're different kids in each of the, but they're, they're crossover characters that you don't have to have read one book to read the rest. But 62 is Countdown and concerns itself with the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
um, with a family living in Washington, D.C., where I lived during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And all of these are, I always say, I write uh, out of my life and just turn it into stories. Mm. 64 is in Mississippi during Freedom Summer. I was there in Mississippi during Freedom Summer. And then um, 69 is that trip across the country with another set of cousins who are making this trip in an old school bus to find their brother who is in San Francisco and they've got to go find him. He's been drafted. So oh. <laughs> it gives me the, it gives me a reason for them to go to all these different places and meet some of the real people who were people in 1969 and also to go to some of the places that were really important during that time. <laughs> it so. kind of sounds sort of like Forrest Gump. That's what everybody says. <laughs> Listening to Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Deborah Wiles, author of Bobby, a story of Robert F. Kennedy, which is a picture book for all ages. That's for sure. <laughs> Deborah, there's one of the things, issues that has really risen its ugly head in recent years or months is censorship. Um, have mm. you been affected by, have any of your books been affected by that? So far, not on any grand scale, um, and not that I am aware of, although I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I know it's coming. The book I'm writing right now um, is already controversial in topic. It's The working title is Charlottesville, and mm. it's about the Unite the Right rally in 2017, 
in Charlottesville, Virginia, over the Confederate monument um, removal, the Lee statue, and all that happened there. And the working title of it has been um, The Lost Cause of the Confederacy and the Rise of White Supremacy. And this is a novel that sold in 2019 and that got derailed by me during the pandemic. Mm. Um, it was really hard to write this book um, and to do the research and, and to go anywhere actually in 2020, but also when the Capitol was stormed and when, um, you know, the, there was just so much that was feeding into the current zeitgeist of this book. So I'm writing it anyway, I'm back at it now. Um, and it will come out and it will be controversial and that's okay. Mm. Um, in some ways it's okay that Bobby Kennedy is controversial as it is. And um, Kent State, I've had pushback on it, but from readers, not from uh, school districts that have been censoring an awful lot of books. What, um, what's the pushback from readers? What's the cause of it? I mean, what's the, um, what's the rationale? Sometimes there's, there are things that go on within publishing that are not necessarily, um, what do you call it, um, censorship on a, a larger scale, but there are, um, there are avenues in publishing that, are, or thoughts in publishing that are, for instance, um, well, I will just tell you that in Revolution, I, I always write from the viewpoint of um, a young white girl, because that's what I was growing up. And as I said, I always take my work and turn it into sto- my life and turn it into stories. Um, they're not autobiographical in any way except emotionally. And um, you know, it, basically, I'm trying to figure out, well, what happened? Even with this Bobby Kennedy book, it's like, well, what did happen? Who was Bobby Kennedy, who was one of my heroes growing up? And what did happen to him? You know, what did he do with his life and what happened? And I did that with the 60s trilogy. I did that with Kent State, once again, trying to get all voices represented because I believe they're all valid and need to be heard. However, um, you can't write a book about the South in 1964 and Freedom Summer in Mississippi <clears throat> and never talk about someone who's not your color. And I had a black character in Revolution named Ray, who I love very much. Who's not a, he's not the central character, but he's someone for my white kid, Sonny, to push against. And there was a big movement going on at the time of own voices, hashtag own voices, and not being able to write outside your culture. And so the pushback was within children's books of, I don't know if you can write about this character. And basically, my response is, it's art, number one, and it's story, number two, and you have to tell the story that's asking to be told. Um, I'm not going to put myself in there as uh, somebody I'm not, but I'm also not going to ignore characters that need to be represented and represented in ways that are, um, you know, the way that I can do it, which is from the sidelines. So there's just, there's just a lot that goes on in children's publishing that's really interesting and when you write for young people, you have a lot of partners. Some people call them gatekeepers. But <laughs> I like to call them. I like to call them partners because there are people that, without them, young people don't get our books. 
young people aren't going to walk into a bookstore with a $20 bill and buy an $18 picture book or a novel, mm. you know, but their parents will, their teachers, librarians, they will buy them, um, caregivers, grandparents. You know, we have a lot of partners in our business and we depend on them, but we don't write to them, meaning that we have to make sure that we don't offend anyone. What we're trying to do is tell the story, and that's what Bobby does too. Bobby wasn't perfect, and I say that in the back matter. And what I don't tell you in this book, because what you, you can only have so many words, is that Bobby did things when he was in that pushing by his father and his brother and being attorney general where he authorized the wiretapping of Martin Luther King's phone. Mm. Where before that, and uh, he was um, working with Joe McCarthy and the House on American Activities folks. And, you know, he, he changed. He, he dropped that. He moved to something bigger than himself. Um, and we all have that in our lives, every single one of us. So we all have places where, um, who was it? I think, I can't remember who it was who said, when you know better, you do better. Mm. You know. That's a good one. And Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. you do the yeah. best you can always. And when you know better, you do better. And books like this are important for people to learn so that they can do this. better. <laughs> That's what I think. I'm going to read you the very last tail end of it. Can I do that? Yes. Because after the whole story of Bobby Kennedy and those people who are lining the railroad tracks that you find out grandfather and the grandchild are there to pay homage to Bobby as his train goes by. You turn to the last page. Grandfather said, look around you. We have come here together in peace, in respect, and with common purpose. We know we have work to do. These can be the days of hope and togetherness. It will take many hands reaching out, just like yours. It will take tough fierce, mighty hearts, just like yours. So ask questions, listen, learn, grow, get ready to change the world. Hmm. That's the end. That's what I'd like to leave readers with, young, old, and everything in between. Get ready to change the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Deborah, tell me a little, let's talk a little bit about your, your writing process. And mm. so you, you have an idea. Um, I'm guessing that not all of them have take such a long time to come to publication. <laughs> That's true. But I am a slow writer. I'm a slow writer. I work on one project at a time. Um, and my main mantra is to suit up and show up. Uh. And if I do that, if I do that, the book gets written. Although there will be days when nothing seems to be happening. There will be days when I'm staring at a screen, writing the same thing over and over again, or when I'm tearing something apart and can't figure out how to put it back together, or I research, I read, whatever it may be. Um, But the process is always figuring out what I want to write about, which is basically following my curiosity, what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis, what was Freedom Summer. I wrote a book called Freedom Summer, a picture book, 
that is my experience of being a kid and um, going to Mississippi where the grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins all were every summer. And the summer that I turned 11, everything closed. The pool closed, the roller skating rink closed, the restaurants closed, the library closed, the movie house closed, the ice cream place closed. The Civil Rights Act had been passed. And so many white-owned businesses just shut their doors. And no one could explain to me what was going on. I couldn't understand it. Wow. And so years later, I wrote this picture book about two boys who are best friends. And one is white and one is black. And um, Annie Mae works for Joe's family. And John Henry comes with her every day. And the two boys play. And what happens when they want to go swimming at the pool together because the new law says they can. And they get there only to find out it's being filled in with asphalt. Oh, my gosh. And... Mm. That was my first book and my first picture book. And I told it from the viewpoint of making up these two boys, but using my entire family and myself as Joe, of course, telling the story of what it was like to go there and the shock that we were filled with to see that, oh, my gosh, what's happened here? Um, And that picture book led to led to revolution two of the 60s trilogy where I said well what really did happen in Freedom Summer it was entirely different Mm. and it was a novel so you've got different ways of writing the same story and different characters and different plot and different locations actually within the same state but it just I let the story suggest itself to me it picks at me like Freedom Summer did. Now, Deborah, you've been a, a National Book Award finalist twice, and you've been published by um, Scholastic, and I don't know if you've had other publishers as well. But how did you first? How did you get that first book published? Um, <laughs> it took. I was a freelance writer. I wrote for magazines and newspapers for a long time, and. When I had kids of my own, I wanted to write books like the ones I was reading to them. And I began to send, write and send manuscripts off and get them rejected. And for 10 years, those (laughs) manuscripts were rejected. I got better as I went because I didn't want to give up. I was determined. And I would go and read the whole canon, you know, all the picture books that I admired, who wrote them, who published them, and began to just do my homework, basically. Um, and eventually I had, I was writing this story of a little girl and her grandmother, which eventually became Love Ruby Lavender, which was my second book in my first novel. Um, and it caught the eye of an editor at Harcourt Grace. And at the same time, Freedom Summer caught the eye of Ann Schwartz at Simon & Schuster. And I began working on those two books with no promise that they would ever be accepted or published and revising and learning how to revise from these two editors, Liz Van Dorn and Anne Schwartz, who were just masterful editors and um, stick stuck, stuck with me. It took me a year to revise Freedom Summer and it took me five long years to learn how to write a novel with Liz Van Dorn. <laughs> I don't know that they would do that today, but boy, they were Whoa. instrumental, <laughs> instrumental to me. And I remember telling my friends, I, I had writer friends by this time. We had started meeting friends online, but it was a brand new kind of thing online. And I remember 
remember um, asking, what is plot? I don't understand plot. (laughs) I was was a journalist, you know, I was writing essays. I didn't have to deal with plot. (laughs) I never thought I'd write a novel, ever. But Ruby Lavender got longer and longer and longer until my editor, Liz, said, what would you think of turning this into a novel with an epistolary core? And I said, sure, and hung up and called my friend and said, what is this word? Uh, what? I'm not sure I know what that means. What is an well, epistolary core? They were writing letters to each other and ah. leaving them in the knot hole of a tree. And there were so many letters in this picture book, it kept getting longer. Oh. And when, but I didn't. I just said, sure, yes, of course, I will. <laughs> and then I called my friend. I said, look up this word. <laughs> said to me was you know that's not your problem your problem is you've just said that you're going to write a novel and you have no idea how to do it (laughs) (laughs) so how many the way we do how many novels have you written now Uh, i've got the or published four novels the four novels in aurora county um ruby lavender each little bird that sings all stars and a long line of cakes with ruby lavender and then I have the 60s trilogy, and then there's Kent State. And so that's it. And the new one I'm working on at the moment. Okay. So, and, so then, um, and then. And this is over 20 years. You know, I'm not like popping them out. <laughs> it takes some time. And then how many children's, how many picture books? Um, Freedom, Summer, Bobby. And then we have One Wide Sky, which is a counting book for the very youngest readers. Um, which came out in 2003. It's the only book I have that went out of print, but I always wanted it to be a peace anthem. So when it went out of print, I resold it, my agent did, as this peace anthem, One Wide Sky, Two Clouds Glide By. So the sky is in Belgium, the clouds are in Afghanistan, three um, songbirds fill the air in France, four fir trees over there, the United States. You know, so... It's a beautifully illustrated book, too. Andrea Stegmeier in Germany illustrated it. And so we have this truly international counting book. I guess I have these two themes, the, the themes of diversity, civil rights, inclusion, um, and the fact that we are all connected. Mm. In some way, we are all connected. And we really may try to get past that and not believe it, but it's so very true that we're interdependent. And Bobby Kennedy knew that, and I know it, and my work or my activism seems to be in trying to lift that up to others and offer it as a possibility for them to see as well. Deborah, do you get the opportunity to go visit schools very often? I was in schools for almost 20 years. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of kids <laughs> and teachers. It was it was a, it was an honor. It was a real um, wonderful experience. I'm not you know COVID stopped that, and mm. I'm not in a hurry to get back out there and do be in schools. One of the reasons I'm a slow writer is because I was in so many schools. Um, but it was a lovely thing. I loved it. Mm. And not to do the dog and pony show of look what I've done. But to say you have stories too. Oh well, Let's the kids them. just love meeting meeting the writers, don't they? They just love mm-hmm. meeting. And writers. I love meeting them. And and the idea of you know maybe they can do that too. Yep. 
Yeah, I want them to know they certainly can. We are all, every one of us, storytellers. Yeah. Well, Deborah, we're about out of time, and I want to thank you for joining us once again. And I look forward to your next book. I look forward to hearing (laughs) what you guys are up to next. Y'all are great. You do such good work in the world, and I appreciate you. Oh, thank Thank you. you for having me. Thank you. And Caroline, do you have some closing words for us today? Well, there were so many great words of Bobby Kennedy's in this book, but this one was this one was from the back of the truck that she mentioned. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and so he said, <clears throat> what we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black or whether mm-hmm. they, and this, this is not, but I say, or whether they be immigrants. Mm-hmm. So this, every one I of mean, us, every he, one of us. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He knew it. He knew it even then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Caroline. What if? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Deborah. And, and what now? <laughs> what if and what now? Thank you so much. See you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you.